Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the heart of the matter or your shimmering self. Since I've already made a reference in the title alone to my favorite song by Don Henley, maybe I'll start by quoting just a little bit of it, because really the topic today doesn't have much directly to do with that song of dealing with regret and loss in a relationship that has changed over time. But in the chorus of the song, Henley says, I've been trying to get back to the heart of the matter, because everything changes and my thoughts seem to scatter, but I'm thinking about forgiveness, even if you don't love me anymore. To me, the most interesting thing about the concept is how we refer to heart and whether or not there's a lot of people in the world who deny that distinction. I think when you hear Christians, especially very outspoken, politically active Christians talk about heart, it is easy to have a knee-jerk reaction in terms of rejecting what's being said, because often Christians present heart as a false dichotomy, as an either-or. Uh, and it's the same thing you hear when you hear discussions about faith versus science or religion versus reason. My point of view is that there's validity to both and that m most of us probably take for granted the validity of both. And I'm going to share both some secular examples here in a moment and a few very short, uh, not even full verses, but just moments out of Scripture that sort of highlight the idea. And last week... Um, talked about Rick Moyer as a different drummer, and I probably sold Rick Moyer short just a little bit in that short segment because I didn't really talk about his artwork where he, uh, he takes uh, frames and uses an incredible, um, skillful photography, sometimes micro photography and sometimes macro photography, and uses a combination of window frames and the photography itself to create works of art that are as if you're looking through a window often at one thing in a sort of panoramic style, or sometimes at multiple things that have a relationship to each other. So a very good artist. And of course, if anyone has taken me up on it and listened to some of his podcasts, you'll know already that he's a talented musician and has songs on iTunes, albums available on iTunes under Rick Moyer. Um, and from a science fiction perspective, music that he makes, uh, parody songs included, with a real sci-fi perspective. But one of the earliest Take Him With You podcast, talked a little bit about this question of heart indirectly, but in a way that I want to start with and kind of compare the perspective of Rick Moyer to the perspective of another different drummer from about a year ago, a man named John Eldridge, who is leader of something called Ransomed Heart Ministries. So in both cases, the heart as a concept, really important to both of these two really important different drummers. And there are some slight differences. So let me start with uh, Rick Moyer, and then I'll go over to John Eldridge and spend a lot of time talking about the work of John Eldridge and Brent Curtis. And when I get there, I'm going to kind of drop in some attribution because I'll be quoting a great deal from, from those two men and a book that they released many years ago, probably 15 years ago now. But first, Rick Moyer, talking a little bit about the concept of Trinity and how do you make people understand what Trinity is when it's inherently an abstract idea? And it's a chief point of you know, dogmatic difference 
between Christianity and the other theistic religions. But the thing that I would latch on to, and again, this is a couple of years back in terms of when the podcast was released, so my memory may be shaky. I may get a little bit wrong. But the concept is that this notion of having three parts is really foundational. And that in some ways, when you hear people, I just smile when I hear people talk about the rule of the threes. Uh, sometimes you hear it sarcastically in terms of when a celebrity dies or when the second celebrity in quick succession dies. People say, well, look out, the rule of the threes. But there is something in our world that sometimes the you know three is a really key pattern. One of the things that I do when I'm trying to validate that math is right when a checkbook doesn't balance or when a report doesn't tie out is, is just do a little bit of division by three. Because oftentimes if you uh, find that there's an error, there's a discrepancy, if the digits, if each one of the numbers um, added together are divisible by three, you might be looking at a situation where the mistake is simply dyslexia, the transposition of numbers. So there is something kind of deep inside us, or even inside the, the rotation of our world, where three kind of matters. So when you think about, well, what does it mean to be fully human? What does it mean to, uh, to talk about ourself in any sort of capital S, grandiose way? And I think you're talking about three things. You're talking about a combination of body, soul, and spirit. And to understand it from a Christian worldview, you really do need to kind of grasp what that concept's all about. Now, true old-school Christian orthodoxy has the idea that humans are a mixture of body and soul, and that that's why when you hear stories of resurrection, the resurrection, the ultimate resurrection experience, is about having a body again. Now, Christianity is not about a, a uh, heaven where people are floating around on clouds disembodied in any way. The Christian notion of heaven is about a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, after the end of all things, wherein the disembodied soul, which is the state that people who die in an earthly sense are in, is reunited with a resurrected body. So both those are important. And that's traditional biblical uh, orthodoxy. But I do like the idea that there's that third component, that the body, soul, and spirit piece matter. And the thing that I'm, I'm not going to go too deeply into, because I haven't personally made up my mind how I feel about the definition of terms here, except to say that I make a distinction between my brain and my mind, that there are things that I, I think, quote unquote, um, that might be linked to the brain as an organ, the, great, the brain as part of the body. But there's another part of me that's the heart, and that's what I'm going to spend most of the day talking about, is this heart. Not the bodily organ that pumps, pumps blood, but the part of your mind that sometimes can diverge with itself, uh, perhaps the source and fount of our intuition, the thing that is, quote-unquote, really and truly us when everything else is said and done, the innermost part. And again, your brain as an organ, as part of your uh, neurological systems, may come to a conclusion about the logical thing to do, the right thing to do, the intellectually correct and valid approach, and your mind chooses another path, not by mistake, not an error, but willfully says, I just have a feeling about this. And that's the heart. Now, for me as a Christian, there's a third part. And that third part is the Holy Spirit, the spirit piece in my worldview of this body-soul-spirit connection to where you could almost liken the soul to the part of me that's truly me, the part of me that I believe will live beyond death, the eternal part. 
But the difference between intuition and faith comes back to this concept of, well, what part of that inner life is my heart and which part of that inner life, that inner conversation is not me but is God, and that's the Holy Spirit. And this notion of having all three parts, representing some sort of completeness, representing a relationship where there can be dialogue, because Christianity does not teach that there are three gods. It doesn't teach that the three gods, that the three parts of God are different. They're in essence the same, but they're conversational. So it's not like it's just like three sides of a three-sided dice or anything quite so simplistic as that. Because in this case, there's relationship. Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes on behalf of man. Jesus advocates for us to God the Father. Those conversations within what we call God. Well, I'm here to tell you, I believe, that as a man, I have those conversations as well. The logic and reason part of me saying that the fastest way to get from here to here is to use that interstate highway. And what is it about me that says, you know what, I just don't want to go that way. I know it's fastest, I know it's logical, I know it's quote best unquote, but I like this road better, I'm going to take this other route. And maybe, just maybe, that's a head versus heart distinction in that conversation. Or maybe, there's nothing wrong with either route, that I prefer both the interstate and the city street, but this time, something that's not me says, don't take the highway. Whatever you do, don't take the highway. Only to find out later when I'm watching the news that there was a 17-car pileup and that most of the people in the middle of that pileup died. Was I just lucky? Did I have wisdom? And if I had wisdom, why did the quote-unquote smart part of my brain not think of that? Or was there a Holy Spirit inside me saying, if you'll listen, I will navigate you? Christians, I think, sometimes sell this short. But there's a passage in the book of Acts that describes Paul's relationship with the Holy Spirit as really the key apostle who didn't meet Jesus face-to-face during Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't one of the disciples. He came later. And it's recorded in Acts that Paul was guided away from going to parts of Turkey and Asia Minor, that the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, prevented him from going there. And rather than fight it, Paul listened to his heart and said, I'm going to stop right here. I'm not going to proceed any further until I get an answer to my prayers of what should I be doing instead, because every attempt to go into Asia Minor is thwarted, either by my conscience or by external actions that keep stopping me from going there. And in a dream, Paul sees somebody from Macedonia, more on the Greek side of his travels, who says, we need you now and we're ready for you. Come and minister to us. And Paul interprets that dream as being a message from the Holy Spirit and doesn't just take the course of obeying a negative navigational path, avoiding the obstruction, but then takes the positive navigational path of going where he feels he is led, going where he feels he was told. And I'm sure, beyond any doubt, that Paul would not describe the decision to go left instead of right in his travel. He wouldn't say that that was his own heart guiding him. He would say that it was the Holy Spirit guiding him. And it's important in my mind to understand that there are really three things going on there. And that is essentially a Christian worldview. It's not one that you'll hear described often, because again, unfortunately, most of the time when people talk about making decisions by the heart, they're talking about making decisions as if there's something wrong with your head or something wrong with your mind. And I don't believe that's true. I think these things can work in concert with each other. 
But before I go any further and kind of get into the, the body of what I wanted to share today, it's probably helpful to go and look in the Bible and see what is described, if only just in the Gospels, about the heart. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Happy are the pure in heart, they will see God. Elsewhere, uh, referring to Jesus, as he saw the crowds, his heart was filled for pity with them. And then, of course, there's the classic that I've shared before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with your strength and with your mind. If you're going to love the God with all your heart and also with all your mind, there sort of has to be a distinction between the two. So I think it's fairly clear, just quoting from Matthew's gospel alone, that in the theology of Jesus Christ, there is a life of the heart. And the heart is a concept which is, well, if nothing else, orthodox. So let me go into what might be a fairly extensive set of quotations, uh, a uh, passage that I'm going to call Losing Heart. I'm not sure it's titled that way in the book. The book, The Sacred Romance, Drawing Closer to the Heart of God, by John Eldridge and Brent Curtis, published in 1997. Now, this is the first of what I consider to be a trilogy of books, and in the midst of writing the second book, uh, Brent Curtis died in an accident. So John Eldridge started this project that was probably originally envisioned even as at least a trilogy, maybe more. And uh, this nonfiction trilogy was interrupted by the death of Brent Curtis. And the impact that that had on John Eldridge cannot be, um, cannot be overestimated. The next two books in the series are Journey of Desire and Wild at Heart. And when I covered John Eldridge as a different drummer, Wild at Heart is one of the books I quoted from. Today, though, I want to quote at length from The Sacred Romance, and I will include um, references that Eldridge and Curtis included in their book, but I'll also interrupt quite a bit for my own point of view. The life of the heart is a place of great mystery, yet we have many expressions to help us express this flame of the human soul. We describe a person without compassion as heartless, and we urge him or her to have a heart. Our deepest hurts we call heartaches. If we need to speak at the most intimate level, we ask for a heart-to-heart -heart talk. And when we love someone as truly as we may, we love with all our heart. But when we lose our passion for life, when a deadness sets in which we cannot seem to shake, we confess, my heart's just not in it. In the end, it doesn't matter how well we have performed or what we have accomplished, a life without heart is not worth living. For out of this wellspring of our soul flows all true caring and all meaningful work, all real worship and all sacrifice. Our faith, hope, and love issue from this fount as well, because it is in the heart that we first hear the voice of God, and it is in the heart that we come to know him and learn to live in his love. So you can see that to lose heart is to lose everything. And a, a loss of heart describes most men and women in our day, according to Eldridge and Curtis. I would say perhaps a great many men and women in our day. It perhaps depends on your perspective. Starting very early in life, life has taught us to ignore and distrust the deepest yearnings of our heart. Life, for the most part, teaches us to suppress our longing and live only in the external world where efficiency and performance are everything. We have learned from our parents and peers, at school, at work, and even from our spiritual mentors, that something else is wanted from us other than our heart, which is to say, that which is most deeply us. 
Very seldom are we invited to live out of our heart. If we are wanted, we are wanted from what we can offer functionally. If rich, we are honored for our wealth. If beautiful, for our looks. If intelligent, for our brains. This calls to mind what probably is my favorite song by Morrissey. Now, I like Morrissey. I like the Smiths. Generally speaking, I like the music of Manchester, England, uh, truth be known. And I don't want to say that my favorite song by Morrissey trumps anything in the Smiths. This would, I'd make a distinction that uh, there are songs by the Smiths I love much, much more deeply. But when you get to Morrissey as a solo artist, the song that I like the best really came from his very first solo album. And I don't know if it's initially more meaningful to me because the album was given to me as a gift by a friend. And that gift of friendship had, has a real resonance to it. Or whether I truly just liked it because it showed me that um, as a singer and songwriter, Morrissey was going to continue to deliver good content without the rest of the band, The Smiths. I can't speak to that part. But on that first album, there's a song called Late Night Maudlin Street. And in it, it's got a, it's basically a, a rolling sort of stream of consciousness, you know, dialogue full of memory and regret. And um, it's kind of the spirit brother to The Smiths songs called Back to the Old House in some ways. But it has a line where he says, uh, he's talking with a friend, and the friend is complaining that women only like me for my mind. So we learn to offer only those parts of us that are approved, lived out carefully in a crafted performance to gain acceptance from those who represent life to us. We divorce ourselves from our heart and begin to live a double life, or what I, I would call a compartmentalized life. I have, in the bulk of the past decade, become much more sensitive and spoken perhaps more freely from time to time about compartmentalization. It's an issue that's just become more apparent to me. Compartmentalization is the problem that allows somebody who advocates for uh, monogamy, who speaks about the importance of faithfulness, who may even say that faithfulness to your wife means more than just acknowledging her existence, quoting um, from a previous inappropriate conversation, as a matter of fact, um, and yet at the same time can cheat on his wife. What is it that would allow somebody to know right from wrong teach right instead of wrong, and do wrong anyway. And most of the time when that kind of behavior manifests itself, what you've got is a disconnect. A disconnect maybe on a very high level between the, the heart and the mind, where the mind allows us to rationalize all sorts of things that truly break our heart if we confront them too directly. But sometimes it's even more complicated than that, that you, you hear it all the time uh, when whenever we see a uh, a preacher who um, you know, perhaps speaks too stridently on certain issues, whether those issues be you know, alcohol abuse or drug abuse or sexual issues, that you can almost always point to it and say, a fall is coming, and the fall is probably related to the thing that this individual condemns the most. And it's a sure sign that that individual is living a compartmentalized life, that he or she, is not limited just to men, is able to speak to one part of their life in one way, stridently, confidently, aggressively, and not be in any 
in any way close to living it in the other place because they haven't brought that head and heart and spirit together and dealt with things in a really holistic way. So we divorce ourselves from our heart and begin to live a double life. Frederick Beekner expresses this phenomenon in his biographical work, Telling Secrets. Quoting Beekner, Our original shimmering self gets buried so deep that we hardly live out of it at all. Rather, we learn to live out of all the other selves, which we are constantly putting on and taking off like coats and hats against the world's weather. Back to the ideas of Eldridge and Curtis. On the outside, there is the external story of our lives. This is the life everyone sees. Our life at work and play and church, of family and friends, paying bills and getting older. Our external story is where we carve out an identity that most others know. It is the place where we have learned to label each other in a way that implies that we have reached our final destination. Richard is a dentist. Mary was a school teacher. And the Smiths are the family with the charming children. Here, busyness substitutes for meaning. Efficiency substitutes for creativity. And functional relationships substitute for love. In the outer life, we live from ought. I ought to do this, rather than from desire. I want to do this. And management substitutes for mystery. There are three steps to a happy marriage seven habits for success, and so on. There is a spiritual dimension to this external world in our desire to do good works, but is communion with God being replaced by activity for God? There is little time in this outer world for deep questions. Given the right plan, everything in life can be managed. Well, everything except your heart. The inner life, the story of our heart, is the life of the deep places within us, our passions and dreams, our fears and our deepest wounds. It is the unseen life, the mystery within, what Beekner calls our shimmering self. It cannot be managed like a corporation. The heart does not respond to principles and programs. It seeks not efficiency, but passion. Art, poetry, beauty, these are what rouse the heart. Indeed, they are the language that must be spoken if one wishes to communicate with the heart. It is why Jesus so often taught and related to people by telling stories and asking questions. His desire was not just to engage their intellects, but to capture their hearts. Indeed, if we will listen, a sacred romance calls to us through our heart in every moment of our lives. It whispers to us on the wind, invites us through the laughter of good friends reaches out to us through the touch of someone we love. We've heard it in our favorite music, sensed it at the birth of our children. The romance is even present in times of great personal suffering, the loss of a marriage, the death of a friend. Something calls to us through experiences like these and rouses an inconsolable longing deep within our heart, waking in us a yearning for intimacy, beauty, and adventure. This longing is the most powerful part of any human personality. It fuels our search for meaning, for wholeness, for a sense of being truly alive. However we may describe this deep desire, it is the most important thing about us, our heart of hearts, the passion of our life. And the voice that calls us to this place is none other than the voice of God. We cannot hear this voice if we have lost touch with our heart.
The true story of every person is not the story you see, the external story. The true story of each person is the journey of his or her heart. Jesus himself knew that if people only lived in the outer story, eventually they would lose track of their inner life, the life of the heart he so much desired to redeem. To quote Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Hi, Russell. Are you like Mommy? Are you doing a podcast? A podcast. Podcast. Good boy. That is pretty much the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> podcast. Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining, Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. There are extensive quotations in there from John Eldridge and Brent Curtis and their book, The Sacred Romance. And I believe that all three of these books that came in this trilogy that Eldridge started with Curtis, well worth the time in the area of Christian nonfiction. I personally didn't find them to be preachy. I've also got a different drummer today that could probably aptly be described as someone who falls a little bit short of being preachy. Frederick Beekner is a new thing for me. This is the first time I've cited a different drummer that I could probably describe myself accurately as being relatively unfamiliar with. The entire concept of different drummer certainly hinges on the idea that I've got a, at least an intellectual relationship with this individual. I've you know, read their books. I've read their poetry. I've seen a documentary about them or the movie they've made, or I've listened to their music, or I've gone you know, to a museum to look at their artwork. Um, none of this is true. I'm going to be quoting a little bit here from Frederick Beekner as a different drummer, and he's a different drummer from whom I've never read a single book. So I am citing him based on other people's quotations of him, including the one that I shared just a little bit ago uh, in the context of this sacred romance described by John Eldridge and Brent Curtis. Here's a description that I found online in a website for Religion and Ethics News Weekly, and it uh, describes Beekner this way. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister, but has never pastored a church and rarely attends one. His ministry is writing, 32 novels and memoirs so far, and some sermons, many of which are found in his, at the time in 2006, latest book, Secrets in the Dark. Beekner and his wife live on a hilltop in Vermont, in what he calls fathomless obscurity. But for many Christians, he's a celebrity. Now, I've just pointed out, He's not a celebrity for me, <laughs> and that's ironic. Beekner grew up before the Second World War. Born in 1926 in New York City, 
He went to Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, graduating in 1943. And there he um, rubbed elbows with some uh, future Pulitzer Prize winning poets and writers and would later become a Pulitzer Prize nominee, nominee himself. He uh, would, after that, enroll in Princeton University, but his college career was interrupted by military service, and he returned to graduate with a degree of English in 1948. After graduating, he took a teaching position at New York University and was uh, still receiving acclaim for his short stories and his other writings, and he began to attend a Presbyterian church where George Buttrick was the pastor. It was in one of uh, Buttrick's sermons that Buechner heard the words that inspired his later ordination. Quoting um, Beekner, I wanted to learn about Christ, about the Old Testament, which had been his Bible, and the New Testament, which was the Bible about him, about the history of the church, which had been founded on the faith that through him, God had not only revealed his innermost nature and his purpose for the world, but had released into the world a fierce power to draw people into that nature and adapt them to that purpose. No intellectual pursuit had ever roused in me such intense curiosity and much more than my intellect was involved, much more than my curiosity aroused. In the unfamiliar setting of a Presbyterian church of all places, I had been moved to astonished tears, which came from so deep inside me that to this day I have never fathomed them. I wanted to learn more about the source of those tears and the object of that astonishment. So that may be a good enough introduction to who is Beekner. What I wanted to do was share additional quotes. Because to me, one of the key things in the passages that I shared earlier was Beekner's quote from his autobiographical work, Telling Secrets. And it's just one of a host of quotes that if Beekner is a celebrity to some Christians, it is probably the quotations that drive it. It could be the overall body of work, including the fictional contributions. But it's most likely to be elements of sermons and devotionals that ring true. In some ways, again, having not delved into Beekner's work enough to say whether he's my kind of author, I don't know that. But I do know that if I'd become a writer myself, if that is the course I would have taken, I would have wanted a resume that looks a bit like Beekner's. I referred earlier to the 32 novels and memoirs so far. And to me, the real key there is not the quantity. To me, it's the variety. And fair to say, because I don't have the information, I can't even speak to the quality. But again, more than the quality, to me, the key is the variety. Having the freedom to be able to write, in my case, movie reviews, selective album reviews, things which you know, look overarchingly across our culture, but also dive a little bit fleetingly into history and certainly covering the kind of topics we do here, uh, politics, religion, popular culture, to be able to write in non-fictional ways, but also still have a credibility either as a novelist or a poet, or more likely, in my case, a short story author, that to, um, to be able to make that work, to be able to make a living that way, and to cut across all those styles along the way, that's a very powerful sort of uh, testimony, in my mind, an inspiration, if you will. But I want to end this different drummer segment, not unlike what I did earlier with Alexis de Tocqueville or with um, Oz Guinness, with some quotes, because I, drew, I truly think it is the quotes that make the contributions of Beekner work, particularly inside this concept of who are we inside and how is this shimmering self different from the face that we show to the world. So, quoting freely, Whenever you find tears in your eyes, 
especially unexpected tears. It is well to pay the closest attention. They are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. This, of course, is Beekner speaking about himself and his own experience of religious conversion. The place where God calls you to is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. To me, that's an important distinction. We talk about ideas like, well, am I going to go where I want to go? Or am I going to take the easy path and avoid obstructions and barriers in my way? The real key is, are you being called to a place of great and deep and indescribable satisfaction that also is addressing a place of great need? The combination. Quoting again, our eyes are just our eyes and not all we have for seeing. Maybe not even the best we have for seeing. Facts are all the eyes can see. Eyes cannot see truth. It's not with the eyes of the head that we see truths like that, but with the eyes of the heart. To see Jesus from the heart is to know in the long run that his life is the only life worth living. Many an atheist is a believer without knowing it, just as many believer is an atheist without knowing it. You can sincerely believe there is no God and live as though there is. You can sincerely believe that there is a God and live as though there isn't. This may be the, the best place for me to jump off from quoting Beekner and to cut this different drummer segment appropriately short, since I know relatively little about him, and yet have still been inspired by him and through the way his inspiration has inspired others. There's an old quote that you hear brought out from time to time that going to church no more makes you a Christian than going to McDonald's makes you a chicken McNugget or going to the gas station makes you an automobile. And we often hear this quoted from this one perspective, this one point of view of what does it mean to say you're in church, but you're not a Christian. I wonder how many people in the Christian world would reject the corollary that is directly quoted here by Beekner that there's a lot of people who believe there is a God in their actions, even though they may deny it with their words. You can live a life that expresses a deep belief in God, even if you say there's not one, just as easily as you can live a life that denies that anything Jesus said matters to you one bit and still call yourself a Christian. I sometimes wonder what the percentage of the Christian world is that fails under this standard, that should suffer under that accusation of being people who say they love Jesus, but don't do anything he told them to do, who say that they're a believer and that the Bible is infallible. But when John, in his first letter, in the first epistle of John, says that if you claim you love Jesus but hate your brother, you're an antichrist, do we take that to heart? The Antichrist is not some sort of mythical figure. It's not some sort of supernatural being going to be born of a jackal and, and take over the church. Antichrist is a concept that comes out of the New Testament, primarily cited by John, and he was referring to exactly this kind of behavior. I could make an argument that Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church ministry, quote-unquote, with its hateful attitude toward gays and lesbians and popular culture and the military, 
is Antichrist. Because John has told us what Antichrist is, and they fit the bill perfectly. If you say that you love Jesus with your lips, but hate your brother, you are not a believer. This is the kind of thing that is being called to mind to us, even in our contemporary dialogue right now, by guys like Frederick Buechner. He may be in the remotest of remotest hills of Vermont somewhere, but we still hear his words. We hear his words if we read his books. But I hear his words because I read people who quote his books. And in the slimmest of margins possible, perhaps, that's enough for me to call Frederick Buechner a different drummer. Let me close this with a quote today from 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. We love God because he first loved us. If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen, if we do not love others whom we have seen. The command that Christ has given us is this, whoever loves God must love others also. Happy Easter.